0: this episode of the Middle Market Growth Conversations podcast. I'm Katie Mulligan, editor-in-chief of ACG's magazine, Middle Market Growth. Today's episode is brought to you by RSM U.S., a provider of audit, tax, and consulting services focused on the middle market. I'm joined today by Kevin DePew, RSM's deputy chief economist and leader of the firm's national industry eminence program. Kevin joins me each quarter on the podcast to talk about recent economic developments and how they're affecting middle market companies. Kevin, thanks for joining me. It's great to have you back.
1: Thanks, Katie. Pleasure to be here.
0: When we spoke last quarter, it was still unclear whether the U.S. economy had seen the worst of the COVID crisis or if conditions could eventually get even worse. What's your view on that today?
1: Well that's that's a great question. I think one of the when we talk about the recovery shapes there's a lot of letters that are being thrown around and one of the, the letters that has been uh, appearing more frequently recently is the K-shaped and and it's being referred to as a K-shaped recovery. Um, what our view is that this is really more of a K-shaped economy however and that's something that began in the late 90s accelerated post-2002 after the dot-com crash and the corporate debt bubble unwind, uh, and then accelerated again in the wake of the Great Recession. Today, it's accelerating to even greater extremes during the pandemic, and, and this K-shaped economy that we're in is something that, that's unsustainable. Well, if you think about the core tenet of American capitalism and democracy, it's this idea of class mobility And what this means is that in an increasingly widening K-shaped economy, one where a small number of people are on that upper K-shaped path as they have been for much of the past 20 years, and then an increasing number of people on that lower K-shaped path, that means the the successful functioning of everything from our institutions to our, our identity is, is rooted in the ability for someone on the lower K path to make that transition to the upper K path. Now, I don't think the, the K shaped economy is what any of us have in mind for a successful society and what the pandemic has done in its asymmetric impact on the economy is exposed. I wouldn't say that it's created, it's exposed to this K shaped economy. And when you look at the data, it shows a recovery that cannot be sustained in this manner.
0: Hmm. And what does that tell us about how we go about stimulating the economy or uh, generating more sustainable growth? If we are in this K-shaped economy, what does that mean for how we come back in a more robust way?
1: Well, what it means is that uh, the the trouble that we have right now or the challenge with policy making um, on the central banking side from the Fed, it's that the central bank's tools are really a a very large hammer trying to tackle something that is very micro uh, in the way it manifests in the economy. Um, So that's one side. The Fed really can't target uh, the areas of the economy that are on that lower K path uh, very easily. That's something that is best left to fiscal policymakers. And as we've seen, given uh, the holdup of, of stimulus in Washington, D.C. today, Uh, That's just something that it, it really creates additional headwinds for the economy. It's just you cannot have a functioning economy that is supported by an increasingly smaller segment of employees and participants in the economy. It's just not something that that will translate into the kind of robust economic gains that that we want to see in a successful society
0: and we're we're speaking on friday october 2nd and the labor department just released its latest job numbers showing that the us economy has now recovered 11.4 million of the 22 million jobs that were lost during covid you mentioned in our second quarter discussion that rehiring early in the pandemic was low hanging fruit and that it'll get harder from here in order to bring unemployment down to pre-crisis levels so I'm interested to know when and if you foresee the remaining 11 million lost jobs coming back.
1: Well, that's that's certainly a challenge that today's uh, jobs report for September highlighted. We only added 661,000 jobs in September versus the consensus forecast was uh, about 859,000 jobs. And we're already starting to see some of the job gains uh, slowing in areas like retail that had been largely responsible for that uh, that 11.2 uh, million jobs that have been recovered. So prior to the pandemic, data showed um, the number of women in the workforce had surpassed men. Well, the pandemic has especially been negative for working women, as many have had to drop out of the labor force because they're the primary caregivers for children. And so our fear is that soon we'll start to see even more evidence of deterioration in the labor market. Uh, you have looming layoffs uh, from companies like Disney. Intending to lay off uh, lay off twenty eight thousand employees. American Airlines may furlough nineteen thousand. United twelve thousand. Sixty seven thousand jobs in the banking industry will likely be shed this year. In some cases, Disney, for example, these are almost exclusively related to the demand destruction that's been a consequence of the pandemic. But in other cases, uh, these job losses are an acceleration in what we're seeing as companies begin to turn toward labor replacing technologies.
0: And another industry where employment is still down is in manufacturing. The Wall Street Journal reported recently on Labor Department figures that showed that about 12.1 million people worked in American manufacturing in August, which was roughly 700,000 fewer than before the pandemic hit. At the same time, there was a report last week from the Institute of Supply Management that showed manufacturing activity rising for the fourth straight month. Is that growth? Is that a sign of hope for manufacturing and for the U.S. economy overall?
1: Well, it is. Uh, both the ISM manufacturing index, uh, of which reported earlier this week, and our own internal RSM manufacturing outlook index both show uh, the manufacturing ecosystem as elements of recovery. There were sixty six thousand manufacturing jobs added in in September. Uh, which surpassed, uh, I think the forecast was for around 33,000 or so. Um, So there's definitely been improvement, and that's one of the the bright spots. But uh, unfortunately, that bright spot appears to now be stalling as the virus spreads again globally and as we face the potential for a second wave here in the U.S. So uh, certainly manufacturing and and housing are the two brightest spots in the economy. Uh, Both of those, however, are bright spots because of the depth of uh, the crisis that we experienced in the spring. So I would just caution that while there have been improvements there, and we've seen the elements of recovery, uh, we still have a long way to go to get through um, this pandemic. The potential for the second wave, what that means, uh, all of these things are still question marks. And until we get to a point where we have better therapeutics, where we have the potential for a vaccine, uh, at least for those who are most at risk, elderly, frontline workers, uh, we're going to see uh, an economy that is struggling to get its footing in that kind of environment. Hmm.
0: And when you're out talking with middle market business leaders, whether they're in manufacturing or or some other industry, what are they saying is keeping them up at night now that we're into the fourth quarter of 2020?
1: Well, it varies significantly by industry. So in, in some cases in your consumer-facing travel-related, leisure and hospitality, the issue is, all, is existential, right? It's uh, are we going to ever get to a point or can we survive long enough to get to a point where people start to go to sporting events again or concerts or dine in at full capacity? In other businesses, it's the uncertainty related to the pandemic and policy. And then, and still in others, it's, it's kind of managing the, the increased demand and the need for scale on the upside. So there are industries like in certain services, uh, certain information technology areas where uh, they've really not seen a slowdown, they see an increase. And so when we survey the data for the middle market every month, what we continue to find is that the executives are increasingly preoccupied with the same things we're all worried about at home, right? So things like cultural diversity and inclusion, climate change and its impact on business operations like like the fires in the west right now. Um, You have a highly polarized electorate, which creates uh, some additional internal headwinds on the business side for everything from marketing to product placement. We have to be aware of who's boycotting what Where is it being displayed? What is our marketing saying about who we are as a company and what our products are are supposed to do? All these things are are the things that are keeping us up at night are the same things that are keeping us business leaders at night with the variance around those specific industry uh, items.
0: And you mentioned this earlier, but we've been watching Congress struggle to pass another stimulus bill. They haven't done it yet. At the same time, many U.S. businesses are still feeling the pain from this crisis. In your view, how critical is it that legislation gets passed? What role does federal aid play as a lifeline for the economy and and for an eventual rebound?
1: Well, that's a great question. I I mean, right now, when you look at the initial policy response and the first four phases uh, that were passed in in D.C., it comes out to about 11.5 percent of GDP here in the U.S. Now, I want to be clear that that was that initial policy response was not stimulus. What's being discussed now in phase five and the reason it's held up in DC is because this is actual, uh, in some cases, stimulus. And so the the distinction between the two is that the initial policy response was absolutely critical to avoiding a worst case scenario of almost zero liquidity in in the economy and almost immediate permanent business closures. Now, that's not stimulus. That's a lifeline amid a global pandemic and a disaster that's still ongoing. So now we're at the point where stimulus may play a part going forward, but it's being held up by uh, some of the policy disputes in Washington, D.C., where the the two sides are still more than a trillion dollars apart. It looks like that with the House passing there, I think it's $2.2 trillion uh, stimulus package. Uh, before we recorded this, that's unlikely, or it's it's definitely not going to make it through the Senate. But it it shows where the two sides are. That's the lowest level that I think uh, the Democrats are going to accede to, and it's still about a trillion dollars away from what the GOP wants to see. So until they meet, we're going to be stuck in this limbo where you're going to continue to see the data start to unfold, job uh, losses. Uh, work their way higher up the income ladder, those who have already lost their jobs increasingly becoming permanently detached from the workforce, all those things creating longer-term headwinds for the recovery, even if we get through the pandemic sooner than expected. So all of this creates the conditions for a much uh, more sluggish recovery and creates additional challenges for many businesses that are already under stress.
0: And you said that initial policy response was was critical to avoiding a worst-case scenario. Um, how effective would you say programs like PPP and, and Main Street Lending have been in, in helping mid-sized companies make it through the first six months of this crisis?
1: Well, it's, it's mixed. The Paycheck Protection Program, PPP, I think that most people would give that a pretty high grade in the way that it allowed... Uh, many businesses to to kind of bridge that gap uh, between the almost zero demand and the beginnings of recovery, right? The main street lending program still needs work. banks have been clear with policymakers that the program structure loads too much risk onto the banks with very little incentive to lend. And let's let's be honest that lenders like to lend to companies that are solvent, that have growing businesses, that can demonstrate Uh, business plans that are relevant to the economy's underlying fundamentals. Right now, most of those ingredients for a bank to business lending relationship are missing. Um, That's not going to improve in the near term. So policymakers need to go back to the drawing board, in our view, and modify MSLP to meet some of the needs of of the banks and incentivize lending, taking some of that risk off. I mean, we've already done it uh, in other areas of the economy, whether you're talking about uh, airlines automotive industry, or you're talking about some of the Federal Reserve backstops and lending programs that were created very early in the pandemic. Uh, But with the Main Street Lending Program, for that to really be something, uh, and we think it can be, that helps the middle market, there need to be changes made. Uh, You just do not have the incentive right now in the parts of banks to be able to, to get them to engage in that kind of relationship with businesses.
0: We're also gearing up for federal elections, which have the potential to affect the business community, especially if we were to have a change in party control in Washington. As you talk to business leaders about the implications of the upcoming elections, what are you advising them to prepare for or to think about right now?
1: Well, there's a short-term and there's a long-term component to this. Uh, If you look at just the Uh, whether it's the predicted betting markets or the polling data uh, would seem to show that Joe Biden has a fairly comfortable lead mostly outside the Martian fair cross polls which is something that uh, Hillary Clinton did not have even though she was leading at this point in 2016 as well so on the short term there are obviously going to be some significant tax uh, potential tax changes Uh, longer term however our view is that this is the more important aspect the longer term aspect of it and that is no matter who wins the election longer term we should prepare for much larger government and a much different tax regime now again this is independent of the looming election In our view there are structural changes underway that will translate to bigger government involvement and in everything from uh, big tech to addressing the K-shaped economy that we talked about and creating policy to narrow that gap between the upper K-path and the lower K-path. Now, the knee-jerk reaction to quote-unquote big government, uh, which in my view has its origins in the early 1980s, you know, we didn't always uh, throughout history hear the phrase bigger government and automatically assume that was a horrible thing. The reality is, like it or not, the data show and history shows that big government has been responsible, directly responsible for everything from the internet, GPS technology, lithium batteries. Tesla would never have gotten off the ground without initial government support. The U.S. government was essentially Tesla's venture capitalist. So in our view, there is a role for a responsible, larger government role uh, in what's happening uh, in the economy. Um, The Federal Reserve has essentially throughout the the Great Recession and into this crisis, they've, they've reached the limits of their ability to affect the real economy and the mainstream economy. That intermediation between the Federal Reserve and the banking system creates really a barrier to targeted support for people, for example, on that lower k path. So all of these things are in the process of adjusting. Our view, it probably looks a little bit more like the 60s and 70s than the 80s and 90s and that we can say that the 2000s has been a transition point where all of these these labor enabling technologies and now labor replacing technologies proved so disruptive that it really challenged the core of what we thought was an 80s, 90s type of an economy. And so it starts to look a little bit more like the 60s and 70s, and I think it'd be responsible For businesses to start to prepare for that kind of environment where policymaking in DC is much more important to what happens uh, for your business and industry than uh, anything that the Federal Reserve is going to say or do.
0: Hmm. That brings to mind infrastructure, too, something that, you know, has long been talked about as uh, an area that's been dramatically underinvested in. Is that, uh, you know, a spot where you could see greater federal government involvement in in terms of bolstering our highways, railroads, all of that?
1: Well, it it has to be. Uh, We went in, I think, the last time – uh, my colleague, Joe Suárez and I looked at this, uh, was probably four or five years ago. At that point, we had what we estimated to be about a $3 trillion infrastructure deficit in the United States. Uh, you know, the reality is that a consequence of less government involvement throughout the 80s and 90s in infrastructure projects has meant that it's the burden of those projects has been shifted to state and local areas, or in some cases, the private sector outright. When you start to survey the areas of the economy that need infrastructure investment, they start to become such high dollar, high ticket items that they're no longer regional. We're not talking about roads, bridges, ports, tunnels. Uh, We're talking about infrastructure with the big eye, which is everything from modernizing our national energy grid to creating better telecommunications networks throughout the United States, not just in our major metro areas. Reimagining what the educational system looks like And incidentally, I think one of the bright spots, if you could call it that, with the pandemic and what's happened with schools is that people have now been forced to evaluate the way schools function, uh, which have not changed since the invention of schools. uh, For the most part, you could still go to a university, for example, and you can get the same degree today and I'm, I'm guilty of this, I have a philosophy degree, so you can get the same degree today that my philosophy degree looks almost identical to a philosophy degree that somebody uh, obtained in 1890. That shows you the scope with which uh, infrastructure needs to be addressed, and that will have to come from the federal government because those are the types of big-ticket infrastructure investments that you simply cannot shift uh, fully to the private sector or even through private-public partnerships.
0: I also wonder if public attitudes... Uh, toward the role of government in our lives will be affected by the COVID response. Just, you know, mask mandates and forced lockdowns and closures. We've had government involvement in a way that we've never seen, at least certainly not in my lifetime. And if that opens the door to a role for government in areas where we're, we're not maybe traditionally comfortable.
1: Well I think that that's a that's a great point if you if you look back a hundred years ago the the pandemic in 1918 1919 had created the conditions for significant changes that were positive in the public health sphere so uh, I don't think anybody would say that our national response has been anything but uh, disorganized and chaotic uh, at the local level, it's been influenced by, or, you know, whichever group has, uh, the political sway in that state. So you have some states like New York where it's been, and in, in many cases, people outside of New York would say it's overly aggressive state response, overly aggressive city response. And then you have areas, uh, where, uh, Florida, for example, or parts of the Sun Belt where people would say that the response was inadequate. So the, the virus has, no uh, political leanings. If you wear a mask, you slow the potential for you spreading it to somebody else because you may be asymptomatic and unaware that you have it. The mask does not prevent you from getting the virus, right? It's more of, I wear a mask because I don't want to inadvertently transmit it to someone else and cause it to spread further. So those are the types of things that have been embroiled in this response and characterize really something that's asymmetric that uh, is not one size fits on. In the near term, that looks uh, very bad. Longer term, however, I think it does create the conditions for a much better uh, and more organized response to future crises, and especially ones that do require, as this one does, some level of state and federal government intervention.
0: I want to go back to the Federal Reserve. It adopted a dramatic reform to its monetary policy recently that could keep interest rates at near zero levels for the foreseeable future. What impacts would this have on middle market companies and on M and A activity going forward?
1: Right, so that's a, that's a great question. There are really uh, there are two separate issues here in in your question. The first is the Federal Reserve has moved uh, to an average inflation targeting framework, which, um, as your question noted, that means rate hikes are essentially off the table until twenty twenty five. The significance of that is the Fed having largely been unable to achieve their inflation target of 2% for much of the past decade, what that means is that they'll allow the economy to run a bit hot if it improves, and they'll allow for inflation uh, to exceed that 2% level for, in their words, quote unquote, for quite some time. So in the last exp- the Fed's uh, inflated, their preferred inflation gauge is the, the core PCE deflator. And without boring your listeners with going through what that means, it's just a measure of inflation that they prefer when they're targeting policy. That measure undershot their 2% target around 90% of the time throughout the, the, past, um, the past decade. Averaging inflation over that period uh, averaged about 1.6%. There were only 14 months or so that it was 2% or higher. So what that means is that they're going to let inflation run a bit. Now, uh, the second part with respect to the middle market and M&A, certainly the pandemic has had a damping effect on that uh, with the exception of things like technology and healthcare. And as a consequence, you see some of the big five banks moving down into the middle market. Uh, Because the mega deals are on the back burner for now, right? Well, this has happened before. Last time we saw this was about uh, 15 years or so ago. And, And the middle market is traditionally a bit wary because they know the big five banks simply don't have the commitment to the middle market the way smaller firms do. It's very opportunistic, and, and then once that opportunity starts to recede, and the mega deals start back again, as they eventually will, then well, they go back to their sweet spot, right? Um, that said, we should anticipate a, a probably a flurry of increased activity to get ahead of a potential Biden-Harris victory, because the, the you know we talked a little bit about the the short-term tax landscape. I think capital gains tax will certainly shift significantly if Biden-Harris victory happens. And so there will, that will actually have the, the effect of increasing some deal activity to get ahead of that. So, uh, you know, overall, I think that uh, we will likely, as a result of the pandemic, see uh, an uptick in m and once we get to the other side. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with companies that, you know, they, they may not be functioning at 100% now. But once or if they're able to be folded into other company or create synergies, those types of things that drive M&A activity that you're going to see that uh, really continue at a much higher level once we get through the pandemic. Mm-hmm.
0: And in the past on this podcast, you've talked about how middle market businesses have been slow in many cases to adopt technology and, and make some really critical productivity enhancements. Was COVID the push they needed to see the value in these sorts of investments? And do you expect technology investment to accelerate as we get to the other side of this?
1: Well, I do. And I think the, the pandemic certainly has accelerated digital transformation across the economy. And that's true for the Fortune 500 as well as the middle market. So uh, the middle market was never opposed to that. I don't, I don't wanna characterize it as they just didn't believe that this type of, of transformation was, was necessary. Uh, but what the pandemic did was expose those uh, companies that probably uh, had been lax in making those technology investments and those productivity enhancements, and at the same time demonstrated Uh, in in some areas that your business can actually almost immediately materially improve uh, if you make those investments today. So those companies that do have the capital and the risk appetite for making those investments are going to be the first to win once we get through the pandemic. Uh, Those, unfortunately, that are either capital constrained or are unable to make those uh, enhancements, they are likely going to pay pay the price for that uh, once the economy starts to get on better footing.
0: Okay. We'll leave it there. Kevin, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. It's always great to talk with you.
1: Thanks, Katie. My pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Middle Market Growth Conversations. Subscribe to the podcast in Apple Podcasts or Google Play, where you can listen to past episodes and hear the next episode in two weeks. While you're there, we'd love if you could rate the show and leave a review to help other listeners find out about us. If you have an idea for a guest or a topic that you'd like to hear on the podcast, we'd love to hear your suggestions. Please email them to editor at I'd also encourage you to check out our website, middlemarketgrowth.org, for more content covering the middle market, private capital investment, and trends in middle market M&A.